Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Dan. Greetings. The word stoic in today's world is more likely to be used to describe a state of seriousness, or a person who shows little emotion when facing the difficulties of life. But stoicism as a philosophy is much more than just an attitude. It is a system of belief designed to aid mankind in its quest for happiness through virtue, logic, and harmony with the natural world. It is also the topic of today's episode. Our discussion will begin with the Greek origins of Stoicism. Then we'll move over to Rome and dive deep into the famous work Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, who has done so much to shape our understanding of this philosophy. We'll also sprinkle quotes of his throughout the episode. Then we'll boil Stoicism down to its core teachings, discuss how it has evolved over time and influenced ancient and modern cultures. And finally, we'll give you our opinions of the philosophy. To understand the origins of Stoicism, we must first understand the origins of the philosophy which preceded it, a philosophy known as Cynicism. Cynicism was developed by Antisthenes in the 5th and 4th century BC and was further developed by his student Diogenes of Sinope, whose dog-like behavior is the most likely inspiration for the ancient Greek name for a cynic, Kunikos. Diogenes passed this belief system to Crates, who then taught Zeno, the man who was considered the first Stoic. Antisthenes worked closely with Socrates, the OG of Greek philosophy, as we all know. For more on him, check out episode 19, Apology and Crito. You won't regret it. Through the Socratic method, Antisthenes, Diogenes, and later Cynics created a philosophy which argued that the natural world is the most useful and obvious blueprint for how to live one's life. Autonomy, self-sufficiency, and reason, being natural characteristics of man, are tools which one can use to live a good life. To the cynic, most rules of society and social norms are unnatural and baseless, and hinder the ability of man to live happily. Therefore, these conventions must be criticized and rejected. Most of all, the cynic advocates for practical application of these beliefs, rather than simple discussion or preaching, to the point of living in a barrel with a wooden bowl as your only property, as Diogenes did. Say what you will, but he walked the walk. Zeno, the student of the Cynic Crates, is considered the first Stoic, and in the 4th and 3rd century BC, he and his peers attempted to compromise between the virtue ethics of Aristotle, which posited that there were a dozen virtues, not all of which would guarantee a life of flourishing, and the virtue ethics of the Cynics, which posited that virtue itself was the only good, and all other goods or supposed virtues, like courage or justice, were simply distractions. They made this compromise by arguing that virtue is the greatest good, but other concepts may be preferred or not preferred, depending on the circumstances. The chief question was, how do those external things help or harm the pursuit of virtue? This seemed to work, since the philosophy quickly gained major popularity in Athens, despite steep competition against Aristotelians, Platonists, and Epicureans. Thanks to Zeno's school, Stoicism grew to encompass physics and logic, as well as the aforementioned ethics. Cleanthes and Chrysippus succeeded Zeno. Cleanthes disagreed with Crispus's interpretations of Zeno's teachings, and was responsible for a noticeable decline in the school Zeno had established. Later, Chrysippus would step in, breathe new life into the school, streamline the philosophy as a whole, and even devise some new ideas regarding logic. This is considered one of the most important events in the history of Stoicism. That is, until the philosophy went international a century later and reached a brand new audience. Around 150 BC, Athens recruited emissaries from various schools of thought to send to Rome on a diplomatic mission. One of the recruits was Diogenes of Babylon, whose public discourses were well received by the average Roman citizens, but concerned the Roman aristocracy, who allegedly felt threatened by the popularity of this newfangled stoicism. But the will of the masses is a force to be reckoned with, and even the powerful Roman elite couldn't stop the philosophy from spreading. And following the defeat of Mithridates in the 80s BC, Rome regained control in Asia Minor and the Hellenistic states, which prompted many prominent Athenians, including Stoic philosophers, to travel to Rome just in time for the Republic to enter its death spiral and be reborn as an empire. Coincidence? I think not. During this turbulent transition, Cato the Younger was one of the more famous names to put the philosophy on display, becoming somewhat of a poster child for Stoicism by opposing Julius Caesar. 
Athenodorus of Tarsus and Arius Didymus maintained the Stoic tradition into the 1st century BC, and even brought the philosophy to the emperor's own ear by becoming personal advisors to the one, the only, Caesar Augustus. Their contributions to Stoicism were great in their own right, but their influence on Seneca may be their greatest accomplishment. If there is a Stoic Hall of Fame, Seneca surely deserves a place there. The man survived tuberculosis, asthma, vegetarianism, Caligula's order to commit suicide, exile, and the vicious Roman Senate. And through it all, he remained as stoic as ever. During Seneca's time, stoicism in general got back to its roots, so to speak, and shifted focus back to ethics and practical application, as demonstrated by the political activities of Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, as well as the teachings of Musonius Rufus and Epictetus. Very few first-hand works of stoicism have survived the past 2300 years, but some from Seneca's lifetime include Summary of the Traditions of Greek Theology by Cornutus, Elements of Ethics by Hierocles, and Seneca's Natural Questions. It's worth noting that we can also gain a lot of insight into how ancient Stoics were viewed by others from the works of Cicero, who recorded second-hand accounts of many of these thinkers and their beliefs. At this point in history, a divergence in Stoicism became apparent. There were those who practiced a more political version, and those that followed a more intellectual one. In any case, neither thinker nor politician was safe from dissatisfied Roman emperors like Nero, Vespasian, and Domitian, who often punished Stoics with exile, imprisonment, or assassination. So how does early Stoicism compare with later Stoicism? And how do they differ? Well, if you know anything about philosophy, you know that it can get very complicated very quickly. So we'll refrain from diving into the finer points of modal properties or post-Cartesian mechanical philosophy, because let's face it, a lot of that is way over our heads. But here are the essentials. If we are strictly talking about antiquity here, the early Greek and late Roman periods of Stoicism always maintained their strong ethical and practical framework. Each period stressed the importance of managing one's inner reactions to outside forces. The three fields of ethics, logic, and physics remained, the metaphysics was deterministic, while God, in the sense of an external prime mover, was absent. The general validity of arguments as they directly relate to the physical world was the chief concern as opposed to fancier and more conceptual proofs and theorems used by other schools of thought. A naturalistic view of physics and natural science was common, and they did not believe in atoms, as this violated the strong idea of unity and oneness of the universe within Stoic thought. As far as differences go, here are the biggest two. Stoicism faced different criticism in different eras of antiquity, so the philosophy changed as the strength of opposition and competition changed. Stoics reacted differently to the Epicureans, the Platonists, etc., and the views which were accepted at one time may have changed slightly from century to century and from place to place. Secondly, the philosophy did see a major change in the social status of those that practiced and preached it once it arrived in Rome. While still in Greece, Stoicism was a philosophy of intellectuals and teachers, which is a far cry from Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome. Stoicism was popular among the Roman elite. Looking at the bigger picture, however, and considering the Renaissance and the modern day as well, we can see that Stoicism has changed much more than it ever did in antiquity. During the Middle Ages, Stoic manuscripts slowly entered the popular culture as they were rediscovered by accident, translated and reprinted after years of work, acquired through trade, or by expensive missions to Constantinople to locate lost knowledge and relics, Indiana Jones style. As these philosophical works made their way into European culture once again, and by European we mean Western European, they had to pass through the great filter of the Christian intelligentsia. Stoic works, which were much more aligned with Christianity, saw the light of day once again. Those that did not received little fanfare, which may be why Marcus Aurelius wasn't rediscovered until later. Another reason being that Meditations was written in Greek, and Europeans at the time were far more familiar with Latin. All of this resulted in the synthesis of what some call Neo-Stoicism. It wasn't until the Renaissance that scholars stopped trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, as Petrarch did in the 14th century, and began to treat Stoicism as its own unique philosophy, rather than Christianity light. And we're better off for that, because a philosophy as influential as Stoicism deserves to be analyzed for what it is, and not what we want it to be or wish it would be. Marcus Aurelius Antoninus Augustus, known to us as Marcus Aurelius, was the emperor of the Roman Empire from 161 to 180 AD. He was born in 121 AD 
in Rome to a wealthy family of Spanish and Italian origins. From a young age, he showed great aptitude in learning and contemplation. He was greatly influenced by Epictetus' works in his youth and adopted Stoicism for the rest of his life. He was noticed by the Emperor Hadrian, but since Marcus was too young to be emperor when Hadrian was nearing the end of his life, Hadrian chose Antoninus Pius to succeed him with the caveat that Pius adopt Marcus. When Pius was emperor, Marcus married his daughter Faustina, and they had 14 children. Unfortunately, most of them died in childhood. When Marcus was about 40, Pius died and Marcus became co-emperor with his brother, Lucius Verus. Verus died eight years later, leaving Marcus as the sole emperor. His reign was marked by war and disease. He had to beat back the Parthians in the east and the Germanic tribes to the north, plus deal with a major plague and rebellion by a trusted general. He died of sickness while on campaign before reaching the age of 60. According to certain acclaimed movies starring Russell Crowe, Marcus's son Commodus killed his father to secure the throne for himself, but in reality, Commodus succeeded his father with Marcus's full endorsement. Yet, ironically, Commodus is remembered as one of the worst emperors in Roman history. In fact, Marcus Aurelius was the last of the so-called five good emperors, and the rule of Commodus marked a hinge point between a time of peaceful prosperity, a golden age if you will, and the crisis of the 3rd century. But maybe we'll cover that in a future episode. To historians and history buffs, Marcus is remembered as a wise and pragmatic Roman emperor who sought to keep order in a chaotic socio-political landscape. Strangely enough, however, Marcus Aurelius is known more to the majority of people for his book, Meditations, than for his rule of the empire. Meditations were private notes written by Aurelius during his time as emperor, which he likely never intended to be published. He wrote it in Greek, showing his Grecophilia and full embrace of the Greek philosophy of Stoicism. It was meant to be a self-improvement journal, a pep talk, if you will. Keep it together, Marcus, I'm sure he said. There is no order to the book, and it strikes the reader as very sporadic. His style is simple and straightforward. We will break down meditations into themes and insert a bunch of quotations and discussion to delve deep into it. The first major theme is the conflict between the passions and reason. Stoicism places a high emphasis on the intellect. Man is defined by his mind according to the Stoics. The body is of little concern. Marcus Aurelius says, quote, As if thou wast now dying, despise the flesh. It is blood and bones and a network, a contexture of nerves, veins, and arteries. Thou art a little soul bearing a corpse, as Epictetus used to say, unquote. We can see here that the body is almost reprehensible to this branch of philosophy. That is easy to say, but how do we deal with pain? Aurelius continues, quote, In every pain, let this thought be present, that there is no dishonor in it, nor does it make the governing intelligence worse, for it does not damage the intelligence either so far as the intelligence is rational or so far as it is social. Indeed, in the case of most pains, let this remark of Epicurus aid thee, that pain is neither intolerable nor everlasting, if thou nearest in mind that it has its limits, and if thou addest nothing to it in imagination. Let it make no difference to thee whether thou art cold or warm, if thou art doing thy duty, and whether thou art drowsy or satisfied with sleep, and whether ill-spoken of or praised, and whether dying or doing something else." Easier said than done, but according to the Stoics, this is the ideal. Your emotions should not control your life. He goes on, quote, And let this truth be present to thee in the excitement of anger, that to be moved by passion is not manly, but that mildness and gentleness, as they are more agreeable to human nature, so also are they more manly. And he who possesses these qualities possesses strength, nerves, and courage, and not the man who is subject to fits of passion and discontent, unquote. The intellect and virtue should be prioritized above everything else. He says, quote, For it is not right that anything of any other kind, such as praise from the many, or power, or enjoyment of pleasure, should come into competition with that which is rationally and politically or practically good, unquote. Besides suppressing emotions, Stoics are known for passively accepting the state of things. Let's see the insights Aurelius has to offer on this. Here is Aurelius' overall philosophy on others wronging us. Quote, Does another do me wrong? Let him look to it. He has his own disposition, his own activity. I now have what the universal nature wills me to have. 
and I do what my nature now wills me to do, unquote. Notice how he sees wrong as the wrongdoer's issue, not his. While most people complain when they're wronged, demanding justice, Aurelius opines that evil must be voluntarily received in order to be harmful. Also, the wrongdoer is the only one who is necessarily hurt by his wrong. This quotation implies a certain determinism as well. The wrongdoer might be naturally predisposed and destined to do evil. You might be thinking, sounds great, doesn't work. Aurelius anticipates this and gives multiple examples of accepting fate without complaint. Here is a particularly comical one. Quote, Art thou angry with him whose armpits stink? Art thou angry with him whose mouth smells foul? What good will this danger do thee? He has such a mouth. He has such armpits. It is necessary that such an emanation must come from such things. But the man has reason, it will be said, and he is able, if he takes pain, to discover wherein he offends. I wish thee well of thy discovery. Unquote. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> I like that one. That, that one, I might print that up, hang that on my wall. <laughs> Basically, he's saying, it is what it is. Hopefully, the smelly man will use his reason to fix it. But in the end, armpits stink, and you have to deal with it. Here's another example that athletes might relate to even more. Quote, in the gymnastic exercises, suppose that a man has torn thee with his nails and by dashing against thy head has inflicted a wound. Well, we neither show any signs of vexation, nor are we offended, nor do we suspect him afterwards as a treacherous fellow. And yet we are on our guard against him, not, however, as an enemy, nor yet with suspicion. But we quietly get out of his way. Something like this, let thy behavior be in all the other parts of life. Let us overlook many things in those who are like antagonists in the gymnasium. For it is in our power, as I said, to get out of the way and to have no suspicion or hatred, unquote. Here Aurelius is saying that we shouldn't assume bad intentions in other people. Some people are just naturally aggressive. The best thing to do is just get out of his way, assuming you don't like getting wounded. Just as the best way to avoid getting hit by a tornado is to hide in the basement, the best way to avoid evildoers is to get out of their way. When it comes down to it, this is the reality, quote, If thou art pained by any external thing, it is not this thing that disturbs thee, but thy own judgment about it, and it is in thy power to wipe out this judgment now, unquote. Pain is a personal problem. On top of this, it is illogical to fear change. Aurelius asks, quote, Is any man afraid of change? Why? What can take place without change? What then is more pleasing or more suitable to the universal nature? And canst thou take a bath unless the wood undergoes a change? And canst thou be nourished unless the food undergoes a change? And can anything else that is useful be accomplished without change? Unquote. He's right that change is an inevitable part of life. It happens every day. We must overcome our inclinations to fear the future. So why would we complain about something that's inevitable? Aurelius notes, quote, Whatever may happen to thee, it was prepared for thee from all eternity. And the implications of causes was from eternity spinning the thread of thy being, and of that which is incident to it, unquote. Mankind is not the center of the universe. So are we left in a hopeless position? Aurelius, though not a Christian, gave his reason for hope. Quote, I venerate, and I am firm, and I trust in him who governs, unquote. If we trust divine providence, or in his worldview the gods or the divine in general, then we won't be contrary to nature, but more on this later. If you're still not convinced, listen to his final quote on accepting fate. Quote, Imagine every man who is grieved at anything or discontented to be like a pig which is sacrificed and kicks and screams. Unquote. And who wants to be like that? You might not like it, but most things you find important are superficial and forgettable in the long term. Stoicism tells us to push the non-essentials aside so that we can focus on what actually matters. Our individual lives are just a drop of water in the ocean of time and space. As Marcus says, quote, Short then is the time which every man lives, and small the nook of the earth where he lives. And short, too, the longest posthumous fame, and even this only continued by a succession of poor human beings, who will very soon die, and who know not even themselves, much less him who died long ago. See how soon everything is forgotten, and look at the chaos of infinite time on each side of the present, and the emptiness of applause, and the changeableness and want of judgment in those who pretend to give praise, and the narrowness of the space 
within which it is circumscribed, and be quiet at last. Unquote. That sure makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, doesn't it? He has a point, though. In the grand scope of things, fame and applause don't matter. Please clap. <laughs> and for those who clap for you, especially if you're Jeb Bush, are quite possibly not being genuine. Aurelius tells us why fame should not be sought. Quote, He who loves fame considers another man's activity to be his own good, and he who loves pleasure his own sensations. But he who has understanding considers his own acts to be his own good. Unquote. We should rely on our own rational opinions more than the opinions of less rational people. How do we deal with all of this? Aurelius gives some advice. Quote, And thou wilt give thyself relief if thou doest every act of thy life as if it were the last, laying aside all carelessness and passionate aversion from the commands of reason, and all hypocrisy and self-love and discontent with the portion which has been given to thee. All things are little, changeable, perishable. End quote. As you could tell from the previous theme of life's superficiality, Stoicism gives off a memento mori vibe. If you don't know, memento mori means remember death. It's the perspective of regularly contemplating one's own death, though some might consider that too morbid. It can be a rewarding spiritual and psychological exercise. You will die one day, whether you think about it or not. Let's see what Meditations lays out about death. Aurelius' overall philosophy about death can be summarized by this selection. Quote, Do not act as if thou wert going to live ten thousand years. Death hangs over thee. While thou livest, while it is in thy power, be good. End quote. Like we said, you will die. It's only a matter of time. So take advantage of your life before it's over. He continues, quote, Pass then through this little space of time comfortably to nature and end thy journey in content just as an olive falls off when it is ripe, blessing nature who produced it and thanking the tree on which it grew, end quote. Instead of grasping for more time once you've lived a good life, just be thankful that you had a life at all. He offers this small consolation on top, quote, The longest liver, and he who will die soonest, lose just the same. For the present is the only thing of which a man can be deprived. If it is true that this is the only thing which he has, and that a man cannot lose a thing if he has it not. Unquote. You never properly owned your life. It was rented for a time. However, most people fear death. Marcus gives this stern direction, quote, Particularly those who attract with a bait of pleasure or terrify by pain, or are noised abroad by a vapory fame, how worthless and contemptible and sordid and perishable and dead they are. What death is, and the fact that if a man looks at it in himself, and by the abstractive power of reflection, resolves into their parts all the things which present themselves to the imagination in it, he will then consider it to be nothing else than an operation of nature. And if anyone is afraid of an operation of nature, he is a child. Unquote. I'll leave it at that. This brings us to an interesting point. Did the Stoics believe in the gods and an afterlife? The answer isn't so simple. Take the selection from Meditations. Quote, Hippocrates, after curing many diseases himself, fell sick and died. The Chaldei foretold the deaths of many, and then fate caught them too. Alexander and Pompeius and Gaius Caesar, after so often completely destroying whole cities and in battle cutting to pieces many ten thousands of cavalry and infantry, themselves too at last departed from life. Thou hast embarked, thou hast made the voyage, thou art come to shore, get out. If indeed to another life, there is no want of gods, not even there. But if to a state without sensation thou wilt cease to be held by pains and pleasures, and to be a slave to the vessel, which is as much inferior as that which serves it is superior. For the one is intelligence and deity, the other is earth and corruption. End quote. Notice how Aurelius considers the afterlife and the very existence of deities to be an open question. In fact, when Evan read the book, he was under the impression that Aurelius was an agnostic. Mind you, it was a soft agnosticism, where he still performed his duties toward the gods, but didn't hold their existence to be 100% certain. Well, what about the afterlife? Aurelius humbly offers his theory on the soul and life after death. Quote, For as here the mutation of these bodies after a certain continuance, whatever it may be, and their dissolution make room for other dead bodies. So the souls which are removed into the air after subsisting for some time are transmuted and diffused. 
and assume a fiery nature by being received into the seminal intelligence of the universe, and in this way make room for the fresh souls which come to dwell there. And this is the answer which a man might give on the hypothesis of souls continuing to exist, unquote. He thought that the number of souls, or at least the fiery nature of which they subsist, was limited. Therefore, in order for new souls to come into existence, with a new person, for example, another soul had to cease existing. It seems here that Aurelius was inclined to believe that we didn't live forever in spirit, but he left open the possibility. Either way, you are living according to nature, and that's really all you should strive for. In the end, Meditations recommends that we live according to nature and submit to divine providence. Aurelius divulges some advice regarding who we should listen to. Here it is, quote, He remembers that every rational animal is his kinsman, and that to care for all men is according to man's nature. And a man should hold on to the opinion not of all, but of those only who confessedly live according to nature, unquote. On top of this, don't always emulate the greats of history. As Marcus says, quote, Alexander and Gaius, or Julius Caesar, and Pompeius, what are they in comparison with Diogenes and Heraclitus and Socrates? For they were acquainted with things and their causes, forms, and their matter, and the ruling principles of these men were the same. But as to the others, how many things had they to care for? And to how many things were they themselves slaves? Unquote. The person who has worldly success must deal with the snares of passion, even more than the average person. All things are connected because of the divine order of things. Aurelius gives a touching account of it here. Quote, All things are implicated with one another, and the bond is holy, and there is hardly anything unconnected with any other thing. For things have been coordinated, and they combine to form the same universal order. For there is one universe made up of all things, and one God who pervades all things, and one substance, and one law, one common reason in all intelligent animals, and one truth. If indeed there is also one perfection for all animals which are of the same stock, and participate in the same reason. End quote. The universe has reason, or logos, as the Greeks would call it, because it has one creator. But hold up, here he says, quote, one God who pervades all things, end quote. Does he believe in one God or all the gods? It is indeed confusing because he uses them interchangeably. Marcus continues, quote, He who acts unjustly acts impiously. For since the universal nature has made rational animals for the sake of one another, to help one another according to their deserts, but in no way to injure one another, he who transgresses her will is clearly guilty of impiety towards the highest divinity. And he too who lies is guilty of impiety to the same divinity. For the universal nature is the nature of things that are, and things that are have a relation to all things that come into existence. And further, this universal nature is named truth, and is the prime cause of all things that are true. Unquote. To harm another person is an act against divinity itself. We must submit to providence. Aurelius gives a stark example to showcase his thought. Quote, if gods care not for me and for my children, there is a reason for it. Unquote. Harsh but it drives the point home that God has absolute authority and right. Now here's a quote that throws into question the previous claim that Aurelius was an agnostic. In response to an atheist objection, he retorts, quote, To those who ask, where hast thou seen the gods, or how dost thou comprehend that they exist, and so worship them? I answer, in the first place, they may be seen even with the eyes. By this he meant celestial bodies. In the second place, neither have I seen even my own soul, and yet I honor it. Thus then, with respect to the gods, from what I constantly experience of their power, from this I comprehend that they exist, and I venerate them." End quote. As you can imagine, the philosophy we've already covered in previous sections pervades into how we should interact with others. What should we expect from others? Here is what Aurelius starkly tells his readership. Quote, Begin the morning by saying to thyself, I shall meet with the busybody, the ungrateful, arrogant, deceitful, envious, unsocial. All these things happen to them by reason of their ignorance of what is good and evil. But I who have seen the nature of the good, that it is beautiful, and of the bad, that it is ugly, and the nature of him who does wrong, that it is akin to me, not only of the same blood or seed, but that it participates in the same intelligence and the same portion of the divinity. I can neither be injured by any of them, for no one can fix on me what is ugly, nor can I be angry with my kinsman, nor hate him. 
for we are made for cooperation, like feet, like hands, like eyelids, like the rows of the upper and lower teeth. To act against one another, then, is contrary to nature, and it is acting against one another to be vexed and to turn away." Unquote. We must accept how people are without expecting to change them against their will. We should try, though, using these words towards a violent man. Quote, Gently admonish him and calmly correct his errors at the very time when he is trying to do thee harm, saying, Not so, my child. We are constituted by nature for something else. I shall certainly not be injured, but thou art injuring thyself, my child. However, to expect bad men not to do wrong is madness. Unquote. Now try using that on the school bully. I doubt it will work in most cases, but at least he tells us to not expect people to change. Again, we must learn to tolerate the faults of others. He goes on, quote, It is peculiar to a man to love even those who do wrong. And this happens if, when they do wrong, it occurs to thee that they are kinsmen, and that they do wrong through ignorance and unintentionally, and that soon both of you will die, and above all, that the wrongdoer has done thee no harm, for he has not made thy ruling faculty worse than it was before. Unquote. Each person has absolute control over his own will. As long as you have that, you are free. There were a lot of great quotes from meditations that didn't squarely fit into a theme. We will include them here as we wrap up this book summary. Quote, Those who do not observe the movements of their own minds must, of necessity, be unhappy. Very little indeed is necessary for living a happy life. For the greatest part of what we say and do being unnecessary, if a man takes this away, he will have more leisure and less uneasiness. According, on every occasion a man should ask himself, is this one of the necessary things? Now a man should take away not only unnecessary acts, but also unnecessary thoughts, for thus superfluous acts will not follow after. Pass through the whole of life like one who is entrusted to the gods with his whole soul all that he has, making himself neither the tyrant nor the slave of any man. Be like the promontory against which the waves continually break, but it stands firm and tames the fury of the water around it. In the morning when thou risest unwillingly, let this thought be present. I am rising to the work of a human being. Why then am I dissatisfied if I am going to do the things for which I exist and for which I was brought into the world? Or have I been made for this, to lie in the bedclothes and keep myself warm? But this is more pleasant. Dost thou exist then to take thy pleasure, and not at all for action or exertion? Dost thou not see the little plants, the little birds, the ants, the spiders, the bees, working together to put in order their several parts of the universe? And art thou unwilling to do the work of a human being, and dost thou not make haste to do that which is according to thy nature. But it is necessary to take rest also. It is necessary. However, nature has fixed bounds to this too. She has fixed bounds both to eating and drinking, and yet thou goest beyond those bounds, beyond what is sufficient. The best way of avenging thyself is not to become like the wrongdoer. The perfection of moral character consists in this, in passing every day as the last, and in being neither violently excited, nor torpid, nor playing the hypocrite. Receive wealth or prosperity without arrogance, and be ready to let it go. No longer talk at all about the kind of man that a good man ought to be, but be such. Neither in writing nor in reading wilt thou be able to lay down rules for others before thou shalt have first learned to obey rules thyself. Much more is this so in life. I have often wondered how it is that every man loves himself more than all the rest of men, but yet sets less value on his own opinion of himself than on the opinions of others. Practice thyself, even in the things which thou despairest of accomplishing. Never value anything as profitable to thyself, which shall compel thee to break thy promise, to lose all self-respect, to hate any man, to suspect, to curse, to act the hypocrite, to desire anything which needs walls and curtains. Unquote. As mentioned before, Epictetus had a huge influence on Marcus Aurelius. You could even say that the discourses of Epictetus was to Marcus what Das Kapital is to college students today. We are sad to say that we haven't read this work, but Evan is excited to read it in five years since it's on his great book's reading list for year seven. Epictetus was born a slave in the Roman Empire around 50 AD. His master allowed him to attend lectures by Musonius Rufus, a foremost Stoic of his day, as we said, and this changed the life of the young man. At some point, he gained his freedom and taught philosophy in Rome. When the emperor Domitian expelled philosophers from Rome, Epictetus moved to Greece and taught philosophy there until his death in 135 AD. 
He was known for his practical philosophy and didn't spend much time theorizing. His top concerns were ethics and moral authority. According to the Daily Stoic, see the link below, good website. The key takeaways from the discourses of Epictetus are, first, distinguish between what you can control and what you can't control. Second, concern yourself only with what is in your control. Next, rethink challenges not as something inflicted upon you or an unfair setback, but as an opportunity to prove your capabilities. Education is useless if you do not apply it to your daily life. Living a life of virtue and dignity is not an easy process, so do whatever you have to protect your progress. And finally, freedom is determined by your mind, not by the body, bank account, or possessions. In addition, Epictetus wrote the Enchiridion, a short manual of Stoic advice. It's very short and quotable, and I also look forward to reading it someday. Stoicism's popularity in ancient Greece and Rome is best understood when considering the other competing philosophies at the time. The educated elite was attracted to Stoicism because, unlike other schools of thought, it taught that acceptance of one's fate, one's place in life, was necessary and good. The cynics rejected most institutions and preferred to live like dogs. Plato warned that political life, especially for the philosopher kings, would be too stressful and may not be worth the effort or the reward. Pythagoreans were almost monk-like in their strict regimented lifestyles and little communes. Epicurus argued that life on a rural farm with a garden and dinners with close friends was the preferred path to happiness, not the polis. Most other philosophies rejected, or at the very least warned, against active involvement in city life. At the time, Stoicism was really the only school of thought that tried to make such a lifestyle compatible with a worldview where happiness could be achieved. It didn't demand that they surrender wealth or status. On the contrary, Stoicism argued that everyone has a role to play. Sometimes that role is one of riches and power, and sometimes it is more modest, but every role exists within the same universe. The point was to disregard the external world beyond your control, and rather focus your energy inward to change how you feel, how you react, how you think, and how you behave. Essentially, the system of thought would work regardless of social status, which is how both Marcus Aurelius, an emperor, and Epictetus, a man born into slavery, whose name literally means owned, became two of history's most famous Stoics. But with the exception of Epictetus, most average everyday Stoics didn't write their thoughts down, and even the ones that did weren't lucky enough to have their work survive for centuries. We do, however, know that Stoicism influenced Nero, Vespasian, Domitian, and of course Marcus Aurelius. The first three would all grow to resent and persecute the Stoics, while Marcus Aurelius was wise enough to see how helpful the philosophy could be. Now, let's turn our attention to Christianity for a moment. If you didn't know, both Seneca and Jesus Christ walked the earth at the same time, all but in different regions of the world. Despite the geographical separation, their teachings were quite similar, and this is likely why later Christian thinkers would adopt elements of Stoic philosophy. Christianity's relationship with Greco-Roman Stoicism can be explained through many stories, but we'll give you the highlights. Let's begin with the Apostle Paul. Paul was born in Tarsus in modern-day Turkey, the same city as the Stoics Chrysippus and Athenodorus, who you may remember from earlier. Throughout his travels preaching the gospel, he encountered and debated many Stoics. In one such incident, Paul found himself before a court in Athens after being accused by the Stoics of preaching some foreign nonsense. His defense, commonly known as the Mars Hill speech, can be found in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. Scholars have noted that Paul's language references the hymn to Zeus by Cleanthes, likely as an appeal to the Stoics who were accusing him, an olive branch, if you will. And as verse 32 attests, Paul's words softened their stance, allowing him to go free. The incident even helped convert a few of the Athenians, a man named Dionysus and a woman named Damaris, among others. In a second run-in with the Stoics, which can be found in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, Paul was once again accused of violating local laws by preaching the word of God, this time in Achaia in western Greece. He was brought before the governor Gallio, who was, in fact, the brother of Seneca. Yes, that's Seneca. Gallio let him go, and Paul continued to travel, preach, and establish churches for years after. But at a time when Christianity was still considered a fringe cult, it was only a matter of time before Paul and others like him would be targeted, and in the wake of Rome's great fire in the summer of 64 AD, young Emperor Nero blamed the fire on the Christians, likely to squash rumors that he himself was to blame, and unleashed the first wave of Christian persecution, all the while being advised by the Stoic Seneca, who had been brought back from exile to aid Nero. Though Paul was martyred during this time, 
Speculation and conspiracy theories have been proposed regarding Paul's relationship to Seneca. Some even went so far as to forge written messages between the two, fooling many people in the process. Did the two great men ever meet, even by chance? Could they have even exchanged a letter or two? It's conceivable, but we'll likely never know. Finally, let's move forward 100 years to an event which tangentially involves Marcus Aurelius. Shortly after Aurelius became emperor, his former tutor, an honorable man named Junius Rusticus, took the position as urban prefect, basically the mayor of Rome. In 165 AD, a case was brought before Rusticus which involved a dispute between a Christian named Justin Martyr and a Cynic philosopher named Crescens. Although Martyr had studied Stoicism, he had converted to Christianity some years earlier. Rusticus, however, sided with the Cynic and chose to prosecute Justin Martyr. From his name, Justin Martyr, you can see where this is going, but <laughs> from the point of view of Rusticus, Christians were dangerous to law and order as they did not recognize the supreme authority of the Roman state. So when Justin Martyr refused to make sacrifices to the Roman gods as compensation, he was tortured and, well, martyred. Considering that so many interactions between Stoics and Christians throughout ancient history have ended poorly, you'd think that the two belief systems would be at odds, or at the very least, incompatible. But this couldn't be farther from the truth. Because just as Jesus said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, Seneca also said, Wherever there is a human being, there is an opportunity for a kindness. The similarities between the two are more numerous than you might think. Here are some of them. Monotheism and natural order. In Christianity, there is the Holy Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are basically three different forms of one super being which created all and rules all. God is perfectly good. In Stoicism, the cosmos is the be-all, end-all, a singular being which we are all part of, but which is rational and intelligible. Each different thing within the universe, like your hand waving through the air, is just an altered expression of the same stuff. The cosmos is orderly and its rules are consistent. However, Stoicism takes an arguably pantheistic approach differing from Christianity. Acceptance of things beyond your control. Stoics focus on changing and adapting one's attitude in order to better deal with any and all external circumstances. Christians place the will of God and commitment to God's instructions above their own personal wants and desires, which helps reframe life's events in a positive light as God wills it and God is good, therefore it must be good in some way. Christians are not as passive as Stoics, but there is still an abandonment to God's will. As Jesus said, turn the other cheek. The importance of morality and virtue. For Christians, a moral life is necessary to enter heaven. For Stoics, a moral life is necessary to avoid difficulties and pains of life caused by not living harmoniously with nature or the natural order. In discipline, the Christian cultivates discipline in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and make avoiding sin easier. The Stoic cultivates discipline to grow in virtue, change one's attitude through routine, and avoid the shame one feels for seeking vices, whose pleasures are short-lived, but whose shamefulness remains. Common Humanity The Stoic sees all humans as part of the same cosmos, and as such, they are all capable of reason and kindness. The Stoic finds common ground and treats others according to the golden rule. The Christian sees all humans as children of God, worthy of his love. And finally, distrust of pleasure. Stoicism sees pleasure as a distraction from the ultimate good, virtue. Pleasure has no benefit in their philosophy. Similarly, Christianity has always treated sex and natural pleasure with suspicion, if not outright condemnation. We can see an example in St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan in the late 300s. He argued that sex was only okay within marriage, and the only purpose of it was to create children and, secondarily, to grow in union with your spouse. Sexual pleasure alone is not seen as an appropriate motive for the sexual act. This philosophy has not changed in the Catholic Church since. We must remember that lust, gluttony, and greed, acts which pertain to material pleasure, are considered mortal sins. So what about modern Stoicism? Modern-day Stoicism is commonly advocated by Silicon Valley elitists or used in conjunction with psychiatric therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy. Stoic groups online, such as on Facebook, Reddit, etc., and even Stoic camps where you can go to learn to be Stoic are becoming quite the trend these days. Yeah, big, very big and trendy. And uh, there's some Stoic podcasts out there too, like us trying to compete with us. We will not uh, lay back and accept that though. Maybe they should. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. yeah. that would be very uh, unStoic of them to uh, try to fight us. So no. we're just we're going to take advantage of yeah. that. 
<laughs> the these podcasts include Stoic Solutions podcast, the Practical Stoic podcast, and the Sunday Stoic. Some big names uh, in modern Stoicism include Massimo Pigliucci, William B. Irvine, and John Sellers. If you're interested in that, you can look into them. And let me add on top of that, Tim Ferriss. He runs a very successful podcast and channel. He's I'm pretty sure big into Stoicism as well. In fact, I think he is doing audiobooks for some of Seneca's works just to get it out there. Like, he's really big into it. So there's there's lots of people out there, and lots of the guys, Silicon Valley, like he said, they're really into promoting Stoicism. We'll get into that. Now, what do we think about Stoicism? Personally, I have a very conflicted view of Stoicism. I'll begin with what I like about it. It has a lot of good insights along the Memento Mori path. This book, along with the Enchiridion, would make great spiritual readings to get in the right mindset regarding death. Scattered throughout meditations were many great thoughts on the superiority of the intellect, the unimportance of bodily pain, and the value of virtue. As we mentioned earlier, there are numerous similarities between Stoicism and Christianity. So many apostolic Christians, Orthodox, Catholic, are naturally drawn to it. Many notable people have put Marcus Aurelius's meditations on their best books of all time list. And the Enchiridion of Epictetus has influenced many others throughout the millennia, and I don't blame them. These books are timeless and give a lot of profound takes on human existence. Also, the secular nature of Stoicism allows many moderns to be open to virtue and classical thought. And modern society, especially modern men, could benefit greatly from being tough and showing dispassion. It would sure be a nice change of pace. But... I need to say what I disliked about meditations and Stoicism in general. There was far too much passivity and determinism for me to embrace it. I mean, if your friend has smelly armpits, just tell him. Just tell him. Come on, man. It's not that hard. You need to do direct action all the time to succeed in life. It's not all about pursuing virtue. Hunger is a real thing. So is thirst. Cold, heat, pain, pleasure. All these things may be mere sensations, but they are real and they shouldn't be ignored. People still need to eat and stay warm. Also, let's not forget that honor and reputation are real too. As the Art of Manliness article on Stoicism Extinguishing the Fire of Life argues, and see link below, that is an excellent article, please read it. Stoicism is directly opposed to an honor culture where confrontation is needed to prove oneself. The Stoics passively let the world do what it will with them instead of fighting like a man. The article makes the point that Stoicism becomes popular when the people feel like public life is futile and frustrating. Just as the Roman citizens under the empire lost their right to direct the polis, the modern American citizen feels cynical about our ineffectual and corrupt government. When the world is out of your control, Stoicism is a survival mechanism. Why not retreat within yourself? It's no wonder that many prisoners of war have found Stoicism to be very helpful to their sanity while in captivity. How Marcus Aurelius was a successful Roman emperor baffles me. He obviously didn't play a passive role in quelling rebellion, stopping Germanic invasions, or persecuting Christians, did he? A final point. Stoicism just sounds miserable when you read meditations, and it's just go back and listen to our book summary. It's just a downer from beginning to end. You're not supposed to, in their opinion, you're not supposed to enjoy any type of pleasure. You only care about virtue. You have to let everything just happen to you. I... I could go on. Is life just white-knuckling until you're finally dead? And is death just the end with no life afterward? Why even seek virtue if you're just going to cease existing and be forgotten by everybody, as Marcus argues? It seems pointless. To conclude, in my opinion, Stoicism has a lot of good to teach, and it helps us to survive in a, our soulless and disempowered age, but it has many flaws that make me say, listen to Stoics with a lot of reservations. I, for one, was pleasantly surprised while doing research for this episode. I expected everything to be so dry and boring, and yes, there was some of that once I got into the weeds of Stoic epistemology. But overall, I really liked it, and I really found it fascinating, especially the history of Stoicism, how it came to be, how it evolved from the Socratic tradition, as so many philosophies have, or at least they claim to, and how it found its way to the highest office in Rome— laid dormant for so long, and was given new life in medieval and renaissance Europe, only to lay low again and resurge in the 21st century. Wow. It's a cool story, and so many interesting characters, from Diogenes to Zeno, Seneca to Marcus Aurelius, Petrarch, and the modern Christian scholars. And as for the philosophy itself, 
I can see why it is so appealing to the big tech crowd. For one, they're mostly liberal atheists, and since humans naturally want something to believe in, anything, Stoicism probably seems like the next best thing to Christianity. I'm guessing many of them see it as close enough to their environment to let them blend in, without forcing them to believe in God and follow his commandments, which would preclude them from world domination that they crave. In fact, their adoption of Stoicism is reminiscent of the rise in Stoicism's popularity in ancient Rome. They're probably thinking, hey, somebody's got to be a puppet master on the world stage. It's just my lot in life. I might as well lean into it. It's also kind of edgy, a hipster type thing to believe in. It makes you seem cooler than you actually are. Everyone wants to be the strong, silent type until it's time to be strong and silent. Anyway, the practical, ethical parts of the philosophy are the real meat and potatoes, and I think everyone can benefit from examining them and pondering them, even if you decide not to implement them. But there's something to be said for any belief system which can help you fortify your mind and your emotional responses against the onslaught of misery that life can sometimes pile onto you. But I agree with Evan. Life is an active pursuit, not a passive one. You can't let the world pass you by. And without a belief in something higher, something greater, it is difficult to find meaning or purpose in life. Which is why Stoicism, Absurdism, and other secular systems of thought are such hard pills to swallow for many people. And I don't blame them. In the end, Stoicism sometimes seems like big cope. So, Evan, what did we learn today? Stoicism, like any other philosophy, has its pros and cons, but many of its positive aspects would greatly benefit modern society, especially modern men. Studying Stoicism's history is not only a great gateway to learning about the Western tradition's greatest thinkers, but it also weaves together Hellenistic Greece, the late Roman Republic, the early Roman Empire, and the history of the early Christian church. Take any advice, recommendations, or explanations of ancient philosophy from celebrities with a grain of salt. And a lot of the time, they're just trying to sell you something and have modified it to suit their needs. Now please, please, don't take cues on philosophy from Mark Zuckerberg or Andrew Tate. Do your own digging and decide for yourself. If you're in need of a great inspirational quote, Marcus Aurelius or Seneca should be on the top of your list. Now it's time for the lingering questions. Would Christian theology be the same without Stoicism? If not, in what ways would it be different, Evan? Very hard to answer that question, but I would say it probably would be a little bit different. If it had not been influenced by Stoicism, it would be more accepting of emotional responses to things instead of just take it. We might not glorify the martyrs as much as we do without Stoicism, because a lot of their stories are like, oh, they, they went to the fire or the, the Colosseum or the cross with dispassion and happy. That That's almost a stoic quality. So I think almost our, the Catholic glorification of a sacrificial pain is almost a stoic quality in a way. Of course, it comes from Jesus, you know, but the fact that it's emphasized so much by the Catholic Church might have something to do with stoicism. Now, it's taking the good parts of stoicism and incorporating it because there there's a lot of good in stoicism, like I said. I think it might be more of an emotionalist religion if it didn't. It might be less legalistic, too. You know, it might be more like uh, Pentecostals were, like, waving arms around and bringing snakes in. I don't know. <laughs> oh, gosh. Instead I of like, think about that. Instead of, like, do, oh, do your duty. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. Just you have to follow the commandments, which is also a part of it. Yeah, so there may have been some more emotional stuff that overshadowed that. And I'm glad that, that it didn't. The snake thing, man, when you brought that up, I just, oh, man, gosh. I don't want to have anything to do with that. <laughs> but I will bring this up. A way in which most of Christian history rejected Stoicism was the Stoic rejection of honor, which continue. I mean, of course, Christianity goes into Europe, gets incorporated, adopted, but you still have all these honor cultures. Like So that's where the whole uh, chivalry concept comes from. It's combining classic honor culture, like having to stand up for your reputation at all costs, it's combining that with Christian morality. So now, instead of just having battles to the death, if someone calls you a name, it's like, oh, on top of that, also, I'm fighting for the weak, for women, for children, for the innocent. And I'm not going to attack somebody if they don't deserve it. And <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of these other there. things, a lot of rules. So that was, that's a way that it rejected Stoicism, which Stoicism says it doesn't matter what people think of you. That That is antithetical to almost every civilization, everyone that's ever had an honor culture. Which, I mean, until, 
I'd say the enlightenment, quote, enlightenment era, when honor began to be pushed aside in favor of character, integrity. I've been reading the Art of Manliness series on honor, and it's really got a lot of good ideas going in me. So that's a way that they rejected Stoicism. But that's kind of a digression. So maybe it wouldn't have mattered so much. If, if Stoicism hadn't been around, eh, Christianity probably would have been very I, similar to what it is today. I wouldn't go so far as to say Stoicism had like a huge influence on Christianity. More like they just had a lot of similar traits that by coincidence or by just common reason. I wouldn't say like the Christians were, except for Justin Martyr and maybe a few others, most of the Christians were like, huh, Stoicism's cool. And I also want to be Christian, so let's let's combine A and B and see what we get. I don't think it was like that. I think maybe they're over over exaggerating the influence that Stoicism had. Next, has Stoicism specifically helped either of us at any point? Well, I'm sure we both have been in situations that seemed impossible to escape or very, very tough. Situations where we had to dig deep and we felt that there was no way out, you know, and we we've had to kind of look inward and try to self-examine. So in the sense of that part of Stoicism, I would say for sure there have been times where I have had to try to block out the the external forces and say, look, I have to just keep a positive attitude and not let anything get to me because then what's the point? In kind of a weird, ironic way, if you just let everything get to you and let everything impact you, then you're just like a puppet. You're just, or you're just at the mercy of the universe. And I know that is kind of what the Stoics were were talking about, trying to get to. But in a way, by controlling how you interpret things, you're you are rejecting that. You are not being a victim of society or the universe, right? So I've definitely been there. What about you? Yeah, I would say these days I generally keep a straight face or maybe a tiny smile. Most of the time, I I generally don't react violently to when people insult me or get on my nerves. I keep it within myself. So I, in this, in the cultural sense of stoic, I I do exhibit a lot of the qualities. So when when I'm at work, for example, I get insulted, which is all the time. Most of us do. Um, I just keep a straight face, and I'm just formulating counter arguments and <laughs> you know, <laughs> in like comebacks in my mind. Thankfully, I don't have to live in an environment like that. I'm, I'm far. I feel like I'm far too animated for an environment like that. So when I'm, when I'm at work, I'm just, you know, I'm usually speaking my mind. If you know the four humors, the stoicism is the perfect one for a melancholic like me. But for a sanguine like you, it would take a lot of work to get there. Oh yes, I was. The, I tell you what, man, at work earlier today, I was not very stoic at all. You know, when you're trying to put a, a square peg in a round hole. You just got to get a bigger and a bigger hammer. Oof, that's tough. Tough to be stoic in a situation like that when something won't come loose and or, or it won't go where it's supposed to. I'll leave it at that. And lastly, did Nero really start the Great Fire of 64 AD? Okay, it was a little sus. <laughs> <laughs> Nero out, out here acting sus. It was sus because he's like, ooh, sorry. And then all the area that got burnt down, he actually did turn it into like a big palace for himself. So... I mean, it uh, was it just opportunistic? Oh, it burned down. I guess I'll just have to rebuild it with something. See, the thing was, he was talking about building it before the fire. So that's why people start getting ideas. They're like, oh, I bet, oh, I bet he's going to build his palace on this. And then he did. Okay. Sus. But I think it was more, I think it was actually coincidence, but he didn't help himself at all by actually doing what everybody, all the cynical people said he would do. You were right about that. Yeah, and he, I mean, he definitely, it definitely wasn't the Christians. It was probably accidental because, you know, everything was made of wood pretty much. So it's it's going to burn. That stuff happened all the time yeah. back in the day. Yeah. So it wasn't the Christians, but he definitely used the opportunity to persecute the Christians. I mean, he would just, he would put them up on like big stakes and like light their corpses on fire as like entertainment for his party guests. That would be like the street lights in his villa. Wow. <laughs> There's lots of stories like that. Nero was kind of crazy. He's putting Vlad to shame. I thought Vlad was bad. Well, as far as numbers go, Vlad's got him beat. But creativity, he gets points for creativity. <laughs> but anyways, so did he start the fire? Probably not. Did he benefit from the fire? Yes. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom.